It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you uh, to this, a very special occasion. Not only is this the third in our summer lecture series, or fourth rather, but rather it is the, um, it's easy to lose count when one starts to get a little punch drunk. Um, but this is also the occasion of our most important lecture of the year, for this is the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography established long ago at Rare Book School and named after the most important benefactors in the history of our school. So it's fitting that this lecture should be named after them. And some very distinguished people have given it. Should you need such evidence, all you need do is look in the first floor of Alderman Library where their names are enshrined in poster after poster after poster. Um, it's a special privilege for me to introduce Jerome J. McGann, who will deliver tonight's lecture. And um, among his numerous accomplishments is, is the fact that he was the editor of Lord Byron. So I thought we should begin with a lesson from Manfred, Act One, Scene One. Byron writes, in the persona of Manfred. Sorrow is knowledge, and they who know the most must mourn the deepest or the fatal truth. The tree of knowledge is not that of life. Jerry McGann's life has given the lie to this very idea. <laughs> because Jerry is a scholar who's filled with the relentless pursuit of truth, and that pursuit has filled him with generosity, with enjoyment, dare I say joy, with a sprezzatura, with a constant love for what he does. And people are deeply attracted to Jerry and his scholarship, because of that generosity, because of that energy, I for years wondered, how does Jerry McGann get it done? There are some 50 books on his Vita. And um, coming to Rare Book School taught me how, because here's the secret. Anne McGann drops him off every morning at the library at 8.05. And she picks him up every afternoon at about 5.40. And in between, he sits in his carol and works. <laughs> and it's, it's an act not of labor, but of joy. Because what Der Jerry does is life-giving for him and has been life-giving for so many others. Um, I promised that I wouldn't tell about Jerry's time in the Cub Scouts. <laughs> and, and his CV does go on forever. But um, I'd like to just pick one little part of his Vita and um, read to you. Lists are interesting sometimes, I think. And um, something that people never read in people's CVs 
are the editorial boards, and I'm going to omit about a third of them. Listen to this. Studies in English Literature, the Byron Journal, Critical Inquiry, the Journal of Pre-Raphaelite Studies, the Keats Shelley Journal, Text, English Literary History, New Literary History, Cambridge Studies in Romanticism, Postmodern Culture, Victorian Literature and Culture, the Society for the Study of Romanticism, Critical Theory in Amsterdam, Critical Text, Modern Language Quarterly, 19th Century Context, Studies in Browning in a Circle, Romantic Chronology, Pedagogically, J.M. Whistler Correspondence Project, Topics in Humanities Computing, Image Text, Broadview Press, John Clare Society Journal, Rice University Digital Press, the Shelley Godwin Archive. <laughs> People want his advice, they want his expertise, they want his genius. He's here to share that with us today, Jerry McGann. I walk to work in the morning. <laughs> I didn't think the Jesuits taught you that kind of truth bending. It's a, a very great pleasure to be here and to have been invited by. Uh, this great organization, uh, the Rare Book School. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, I'm one of those pedants whose scholarly life is always connected to libraries. I remember having a conversation with uh, a person I won't name years ago when uh, I was joining a, uh, a new university and he was showing me around. And I asked him about the library and, and he gave a perfunctory response. And, and I said, uh, well, is it any good? Uh, and he said, well, what I do, I don't need a library for what I do. And I said, well, blank. <laughs> I can't do what I do without a library. So that's the truth. And I suppose that's why I do hold myself up uh, in my study of the library. Anyhow. Uh, this lecture I've called out from a, a book that will be out next year uh, from Harvard called Memory Now, uh, and the subtitle is Philology in a New Key. Uh, the book is more or less an argument with philosophy, or what we call in our day theory, uh, and the, uh, uh, the uh, positive and not so positive influence that it has had on literary and cultural studies. Um, I suppose the, the moral of the story is that uh, it might be a better idea to try to approach the problems of literature and culture through philology rather than through philosophy. Anyway, here is a truth universally acknowledged, that the whole of our cultural inheritance has to be recurated and re-edited in digital forms and institutional structures. But as the technology of cultural memory shifts from the bibliographical to the digital, a hard question arises. What do we do with the books? This is a problem for society at large, and many people are working at it, none harder than certain technical people, experts, highly skilled and highly motivated as they are. They have little knowledge of the history of books or of their complex machineries. 
The situation has created a special problem for humanist scholars, the long-recognized custodians of cultural memory. So I want to take up the question again in a more traditional form, in fact, a textual form, like the book from which I've called these words. Now more than ever, we need to understand how bibliographical technology works. Designing optimal digital environments requires it. The notorious crisis in the humanities, which is still with us, is by no means simply an intramural problem with an ivory, for an ivory tower or bookish community. Society at large is sorely mistaken when it views cultural studies as a surplus educational function. Trivial, it's often thought, when set beside, for instance, those STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math. For all their importance, those disciplines are unequipped to investigate the relation of language and literature to society. Why that understanding is a precious resource for our present presentist culture is one of the two primary concerns I want to talk about. The other is a <coughs> practical concern. How to exploit that resource uh, for societies now moving to organize cultural memory in digital forms. My practical aim is primarily directed to the traditional custodians of cultural memory. I want to persuade you, librarians and fellow scholars, pedants, that textual and editorial scholarship, often marginalized in humane studies as a narrowly technical domain, should be shifted back to the center of humanist attention. Understanding the technologies of book culture is fundamental for any practical approach to digital humanities. But you can't do that well without an intimate acquaintance with the scholarship of textuality. That scholarship once had a name to conjure with, philology. We need to reorient our study of the documentary archive. To do that well, we also need to recover certain neglected philological procedures for investigating the implicate order of human memory and its material representations. That order was first engaged in this way by the great historicist philologists of the 19th century, most elaborately in what they called Zach Philologia, or Zach, uh, thing uh, philology, uh, uh, philology of material objects. The word signals an object-oriented and media approach to the study of history and culture. It solicits a larger perspective <coughs> on the documentary record. In our context, the bibliographical as well as the digital record, and so sets the agenda for what I want to call, after Suzanne Langer, a person who had a great influence on me many years ago, philology in a new key. This work asked to be recomposed in a new key because information technology is exerting significant institutional pressure for change in humanities education. Everybody knows this. Once it was lamentably glacial, but the changes keep gaining momentum, fueled by various enthusiasms both within and outside the academy. The drive that began in 2010 to establish the Digital Public Library of America is symptomatic. The library, research, as well as local public is the storm center of these changes because the library is the home base of general education for the citizen, as well as for the research and teaching humanist. 
The digital migration of our museum and library archives is well underway and it will continue. So is the development of an integrated network for connecting these resources. And all that is good, inevitable. Indeed, it's thrilling. But then, forgive me, Wordsworth, a timely utterance brought my thrills to grief. After we digitize all the books, the books will still be there, as indispensable as they ever were. No digital technology can replace them with digital surrogates. No digital technology can embrace them in an online network. What kind of research and educational program can integrate the preservation and study of these two radically different media? I take here book technology simply as a paradigm of the problem that digitization has brought to many traditional humanities disciplines and materials, not least of all audiovisual and haptic materials. The problem is especially difficult because it requires a practical solution and nobody has yet found one. We've been experimenting with jerry-rigged approaches for over 20 years. But as the digitization of the traditional archive has gained in nature, and a very good thing that is, the problem for humanists has not diminished. If anything, it's more urgent than ever. Nor has that work of the humanist scholar changed with the advent of digital devices. It's still to preserve, to monitor, to investigate, and to augment cultural life. That simple truth is why, as we try to exploit the capacities of these new electronic environments, we want to think about them in traditional philological forms. What is philology? Literally, it means to the love of the word, or really articulated thought. The term and the discipline grew to eminence in the 19th century, perhaps a bad eminence as far as the 20th century is concerned, and it defined what we now call literary and cultural studies. The great German philologist August Beck famously defined philology as the knowledge of what is known. It works from the assumption, in the words of the great scholar, bibliographer, Don McKenzie, that the documents carry the evidence within them of the history of their own making. We study and pass on the human record <clears throat> that others before us have studied and passed on to us. Essential to that study are the socio-historical conditions of its creation and its emergence. The knowledge of what is and has been known. The strength of the formulation lies in the equation it draws between what we know now and what has been known in the past. For the truth is that all knowledge comes at a historical deficit. Beck's words are an injunction to intellectual modesty, a warning against the illusions of enlightenment. He's arguing that we take the broken historical record, what we know from the past, as the measure of what we are knowing in the present, not vice versa. All knowledge is fractured and limited because the acts of knowing are executed in the slipping down life of the present. When the moving finger writes and having writ moves on. That famous text from Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat figures its skepticism as a script that can never be canceled. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on. Nor all your piety, nor wit, shall lure back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. The passage fairly defines the philological conscience. 
which subjects all interpretation to the judgment of documentary facticities, as unavailable as they are unmasterable. And as Fitzgerald's poem goes on to argue, the ruptures that characterize the documentary record are an ever-present function when the history of the making of those documents is continually rewritten and thence further revealed and thence further obscured. For literature is always what Randy McLeod calls obliterature. The documents we fashion now record the same burden of their own making as the documents that we inherit. Those documents are the heroes of my work. And I begin there because the primitive coding protocols of the entire archive, material as well as documentary, are textual protocols, as they have always been. That is, they are natural language and all of the institutional mechanisms that enable natural language to work as a communication system. Starting at the documentary level, then, I want to follow long-traveled philological roads, moving to explore the mechanisms of both production history and transmission history and their complex relations as they unfold. In that analytic point of view, secondary documents, posthumous editions, forgeries, translations, piracies, are all as important as the authorial manuscripts and the early editions. So are all those attendant materials, reviews, commentaries, which expose and further define the character and the meaning of the material. What memory would we have of the ancient world, of Sappho, and of Homer, for example, except for those secondary materials. Absolutely nothing. All those materials are part of the implicate order of memory that calls out to the implicate order of the disciplines of humanities. Literature and language, scholars like myself, for instance, work best when we don't wander far from what Blake called minute particulars, this prosodic movement in crossing Brooklyn Ferry that edition of Ivanhoe, or that translation of The Origin of the Species, this network of historical and literary allusions in Portrait of a Lady, those early reviews of tender buttons. These works and the documents are difficult to engage if they get disengaged from the internet work of related documents and works, all as particular as the others. For that is where they live and move and have their being. Or Perhaps we should say, at least initially, where they once lived and had and moved and had their being. For these are all what another po great poet called the dead, but sceptered sovereigns who still rule our spirits from their urns. Had I called attention to Ovid, Petronius, or Dante, the problem of a fragmented cultural memory would have been very clear. While all three are foundational for, for the transmission of the cultural memory of the West, they are now a conscious resource only for a small class of persons, a kind of secular priesthood, humanities scholars in the West. The move to specialization in humanities research and education has greatly increased the difficulty of accessing these resources. So too has the focus on the present and the recent past in humanities education. These problems have grown increasingly acute during the past 200 years. Eliot published The Wasteland in major part to argue, or really to demonstrate through a recollection of ancient exemplar like Ovid, Petronius, and Dante, that a cultural crisis was well advanced. His poem merely replicates another famous poem published more than 100 years earlier, Byron's The Jower, 
which made exactly the same argument using very different but equivalent stylistic means. Both Eliot's modernist collage and Byron's romantic fragment were written to expose the dissociation of Western cultural memory. Eliot is perhaps the, the more extreme uh, and the more alienated work because his focus is so literary and so aesthetic. The wasteland only gained its social authority through specialized academic mediation. Byron's poem, by contrast, was an immediate popular success because it represented the cultural crisis not in Eliot's narrow aesthetic terms, but as an immediate social and political relation. The contemporary brutal history of Western imperialism as observed at a revealing point of uh, focus, modern Greece. Byron published his Lament in 1813, Eliot in 1922. Today, the situation appears even more stressed. In the United States, the imperial center of these digital transformations I'm talking about, there are few ready-to-hand readers for Scott or James, least of all for Pushkin or Stendhal. Having now become either ruins or movies, their works have to be pedagogically, artfully, philologically recreated. In the terms of an earlier lexicon, poetry is the art of memory, rhetoric, a set of memory techniques, and philology, the science of memory. Their contemporary names are art, media, and scholarship. The, science of memory, the sciences of memory themselves are the human sciences, and while they're always enlisted for various instrumental social purposes, they are fundamentally self-reflexive and in social terms, conservative. Now, given the violent, or often violent, struggles of competing human interests, the term conservative might signify, today, only some special set of ideals or interests. A book of virtues, for instance. In that respect, the word will command forgetting, refusing, deleting. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. But even that famous monotheist injunction lets us know that strange gods, like the poor whom Jesus loved, will always be with us, however we may neglect or try to expel them. Here I take a more conservative view of the word conservative. As to cultural heritage, though much is always forgotten, refused, and deleted, we should, I think, disapprove and resist. Standing thus, it is a philological, and I admit not a moral, stand. All words become, like the word Jesus, living words, exactly because they can only save their lives by losing them, like the gods. The poets are not the only ones who work to shore up those fragments against those ruins, although they are more acute to remember than most of us. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. That's Tennyson, whose works register as well as any the paradoxical experience and legacy of globalization. With that knowledge accumulating in the imperial archives of enlightenment comes the crumbling memory of modern societies. That's Paul Connerton. 19th century philology and German historicism in general made the initial secular engagement with the problem of understanding historical tradition and cultural memory in the accelerating conditions of modernity. The catastrophic history of the early 20th century 
moved the great sociologist Maurice Halbwachs to argue that society, rather than history, should drive cultural and educational policy. It's an interesting move. He, so he turned to study and celebrate forms of human memory. Really, memory studies began, well, perhaps with Nietzsche, but uh, professionally with Halbachs. Because, I'm quoting him, it is individuals as group members who remember. The memory of both the individual and the group is sustained in the ceremonies and commemorative events of dynamic collectives. In reality, he observed, uh, or in this really adorable kind of embracing reality, we are never, he says, alone. I'm going on with him. I turn to these people, I momentarily adopt their viewpoint, and I re-enter their group in order better to remember and recognize in myself many ideas and ways of thinking that could not have originated with me. In the context of Hobwack's early 20th century context, he introduced an attractive model of social and psychological stability. But pressed 40 or 50 years forward, it becomes a model that helps to illuminate a global array, a network only in a cybernetic sense, of social groups that have become radically atomized. Transacted in a postmodern condition by ideas and ways of thinking that could not have originated with me, I discover my splintered sodality. The effacements of Facebook, eyes and flicking fingers, locked down to little machines, ears buttoned up, doors of perception cleansed and closed. In this respect, Paul Connerton's work is exemplary of the problem of memory and hence of culture in a world caught in its cybernets. We are living in a culture of hypomnesia. Uh, he remarked, uh, this is Connerton, he remarks, only to add immediately that we are living in a post-mnemonic age, a forgetful culture. But the paradox for him is only apparent because he sees these conditions as codependent. This is Connerson. By accelerating time, computer usage immerses individuals in a hyper-present and intensified immediacy, which makes it ever more difficult to envisage even the short-term past as real. The onset of forgetting and the longing for the moment proceed in tandem, exposed to what Guy Debord has called diffuse spectacle. People find historical knowledge annihilated as a perpetual present is installed in its place. Present time is packed to bursting. Past time is evacuated. What Connaughton worries about here is a person's fractured experience of a present that seems packed to bursting with everything that has ever been known as well as everything that is even now being known. And worse still, the prospect of a future that will keep augmenting this disorienting condition. A central concern of his work, as of many now, is the information overload in a digitally globalized world. Literature scholars gain a special view of that large social problem by virtue of our narrow vocational investment in book culture. As our libraries move forward to a digital organization, their primary traditional commitment to collect and maintain the heritage of manuscript and books has raised acute problems, as we know. These emerge through the event now become an accepted fact of social policy, the migration of our traditional cultural inheritance to a system of digital storage access and reuse. 
How then are we to save the traditional inheritance in its original material forms and integrate those objects to our born or new born digital cultural work? We are living in the last days of book culture. That's clear. Of course, this does not mean we are living in the last days of reading culture, least of all of our textual condition. But it's also clear, at least to me, that as we proceed to digitize our print and manuscript objects, and hence as our engagements with those objects become primarily digital engagements, the living culture uh, that created and sustained them become, uh, becomes themselves an object, something in Connaughton's words that is known about rather than something that is known in one's continuing life. For the literary scholar working online can seem like entering a bibliographical day of the dead. For the digeratus, reading a book is perhaps something like watching a George Romero zombie movie. Book culture is dying, and for millions of people, it has already died. Cultural forms, like the people who gave them life, die all the time. The global economy of sailing ships, the civilization of the Etruscans, Cathar culture. But religious authorities, priests, Brahmins, shamans, mediate the rituals and ceremonies operating a global truth that permeates perpetual loss. Things that die need not therefore be dead. As the poet observed, nature is a Heraclitean fire, and if there is not to be precisely a Christian comfort of resurrection, there may instead be, as Joyce said later, a commodious vicus of recirculation. In that perspective, this peculiar moment in the life and death of book culture is handing on to us its belated secular custodians an unusual gift, alienation. This is the theme of Oship Mandelstam's famous essay, The Word and Culture, 1921. Mandelstam is distinctly a philological poet, which is to say he is pierced with a sense of the fragility of ordinary human history. So, he does not hanker after realms beyond quotidian good and evil, where all things may be thought to rest in the eternity of God's eye view. He's obsessed with memory, which for him must be Catholic and non-selective, Catholic and therefore impossible. His concern for the past is very like our present concerns. Though we forget deaccession and digitize, I love that word, deaccession, all that is deficit spending. The losses involved will never be redeemed by the gains we tried to secure. There is one moral we realize from the digital transition we're moving through. When I've suggested this in the past, many took it as a depressing view. But why should it be? It seems to me a gift and an opportunity. A fate of our time calls us to engage this transition and as scholars, as librarians, to help oversee, monitor, and first of all, given our vocation, to understand it. We will do all that poorly if we don't try to imagine what we don't know. How, why, what, I'm not even sure which of those words is correct here. Literature, as we have known it, will be known again on its own terms. Whatever that event, this seems to me certain. We won't achieve such an imagining without a sympathetic engagement with the way we live now. Like Mandelstam, 
or that other legendary philologian de nos jours, Walter Benjamin. Our humanist vocation gives us an important vantage on our current historical emergency. Recent initiatives like Europeana and Digital Public Library of America show how much has changed at the center of humanities research and education today. How much has changed in our museums and libraries since the turn of the century, a mere 13 years. In Radiant Textuality, I took off from the work I'd been doing with the Rossetti Archive. That project was undertaken in 1993 uh, in order to investigate the logical and the ontological structure of textual fields. And while those matters remain important, particularly for me, their limitations became clear even as we pressed on with the investigation. Radiant textuality paid little attention to the institutional character of the problems. Here's a relevant personal story. The theoretical design of the Rossetti Archive in 1993 was grounded in this working hypothesis, that a fully integrated online network of depositories was already theoretically operational and prepared to integrate with projects like the Rossetti Archive. Such an internetwork, particularly for humane materials, did not in fact exist in 1993, although the hope toward it was well advanced among those who took an interest in that matter. Our design hypothesis laid a, a functional demand on the process of building the archive. Its internal structure had to match a globally internetworked organization that was technically and institutionally feasible. That conceptual horizon meant we had to execute every local action in conscious relation to the imagined internetwork, non-existent. Practically, we had to monitor in a regular way the global state of an unfolding and highly volatile set of institutional activities. That internet work was realizing itself during the years we were building the Rossetti Archive, between 1993, when the internet began to project a global interface, and 2012, when undertakings like Europeana and DPLA, were, uh, Digital Public Library of America, were in full development. In turn, the evolving internet work kept exerting critical pressure on our understanding of what we were doing with the archive. And so, the archive got built. But that event produced as well a set of surprising results. For in building it, we were imagining what we didn't know. For instance, our initial design harbored internal flaws that only became visible when we tried to implement the design under the horizon of the unfolding network. Initially, these appeared as technical limitations and contradictions. Dealing with them brought a second surprising realization. The de facto historical status of certain problems could only be managed but not removed from the design without tearing it all down and starting all over again. The problems also exposed deeper design issues that we had no idea how to address, much less resolve. For instance, it still remains, how to design automated analytic relations between traditional materials and their digital surrogates. They could be linked, and as on a light board, compared, but beyond that lay the mysterium. All this amounted to learning by doing, which is to say as well learning by failing. At first, these failures seemed conceptual and technical, but with the rapid expansion of the technical capacities of the internet work, we could finally see 
that the most intractable problems were political problems and institutional problems. It's still true today, more than ever. That realization forced a decisive change in direction signaled by the founding of NINES in 2002, the Networked Infrastructure for 19th Century Electronic Scholarship. Andy is the director sitting over there. Designing and implementing online environments for research-based education in the humanities required more than a technical laboratory uh, like the archive or a think tank, institutional location like IAF, the Institute for Advanced Technology and Humanities, very distinguished, but it's not, it's, the problem is it's extra institutional. Without firm connections to the regular programmatic work of university operation, intramural degree-granting mechanisms, as well as the supporting extramural professional system, research education must be fundamentally constrained. The sign of these constraints is the institutional divide separating traditional from digital humanists. But it is more than a sign. It's a divide built into a complex set of everyday institutional operation. No one can seriously doubt that the discourse of the humanities research community will be digitally organized in our traditional lexicon that we will give up books for online publishing and that we will take up digital tools for studying our cultural inheritance, including books. But even as that is granted and understood, the importance of the traditional resources, material resources, methodological and theoretical resources, is much less well understood. This seems true on both sides of the humanities divide. Digital humanists tend to see their traditional colleagues and the inherited research system as needing to be brought up to date. And while that view has its truth, equally true is the digital community's increasingly attenuated historical sense. Nearly everyone misses the problem here, I think, because the web has made available such vast amounts of historical data. We can now quickly annotate just about anything we've never heard of. <laughs> but there lies the problem, as Connerton, among others, has so painfully made clear. Perhaps never before have we been able to know about so much and to know so little about what we know. Connerton is drawing an important distinction between forms of memory, that's stored data, the knowledge of what is known, and the human persons who access and use it. We speak of computerized memory banks, and we've naturally tried to organize digital environments after our library and museum models, and sometimes vice versa. Then the scale of the data and information deposits explodes in online aggregated systems and cloud computing. So we talk about drinking information from a fire hose. Though our language often misleads us to think otherwise, none of that data or information is memory, not even the software that facilitates its retrieval and use. No one drinks from a fire hose, and only living things, perhaps even only people, have memories. It's imaginable that machines might take a kind of Lucretian swerve and develop what we call consciousness, and therefore what we understand as memory. It's being imagined all the time, but I suspect with Olaf Stapleton that such an event requires an unimaginable time scale. Blade Runner is a sweet and sentimental escape, dream of escape, from a society that's lost its mind and its memory. So I want to say that memory now means pretty much exactly what it meant to Montaigne, to Tolstoy, to Proust, to Siebold. 
I don't say Gibbon or to Churchill, because the forms of their memories were imperially inflected. A condition that transforms human memory, that most personal experience, into uh, what shall we call it? A sense of history. And I don't say Plato or Augustine or even Aristotle because their interest in memory is theoretical, even metaphysical and theological. My approach to memory is through philology, a science that grounds its knowledge in an assumption of its own limit conditions. In this perspective, memory is how we take care of what we love and what we lose. Tormented memory is when we remember that we forgot. We create machineries to help us remember the arts, or rather the artifacts of memory. Libraries, museums, digital environments, families, nations, ceremonies. No question, but these machines are unreliable and often destructive. And they get out of hand, some dangerously out of hand. The story of the Tower of Babel and the myth of Faust are ways of reflecting on memory machines that went well out of hand. Both are philological reflections, the one from a theological view of the world, the other from a philosophical and scientific view. The one is an imperial tale, the other is personal. Personally, I prefer the personal tales, Faust and Margaret, Manfred and Astarte. The transition to digitally-based research education is being imagined and driven as a global internetwork, diverse, transnational, collaborative. Broad and embracing in its geophysical perspective, the effort is at the same time shaped in very presentist terms, an all-encompassment of the just-in-time, a marketplace of users and providers. It's a place with a great need to remember that all those agents bear along with them their ancient household gods. So, as we try to forge our passages to India, even two-way and radial routes, perhaps, we might also remember what E.M. Foster imagined at the conclusion of his novel, A Passage to India. Though the book is an imagination of failure, that imagination also held out a promise of possible success, at least of some kind. The promise lay recorded in the details of the place of failure, whose memory Foster urges us to cherish. I'm going to read the last two paragraphs of that great novel. Why can't we be friends, said Cyril Fielding to Dr. Aziz, holding him affectionately. It's what I want. It's what you want. But the horses didn't want it. They swerved apart. The earth didn't want it, sending up rocks through which riders must pass single file. The temples, the tank, the jail, the palace, the birds, the carrion, the guest house that came into view as they issued from the gap and saw more beneath. They didn't want it. They said in their hundred voices, no, not yet. And the sky said, no, not there. Forgotten gods in those small things of the world, and they have long memories. Philology tells us how we should listen to their hundreds of voices as we try making our ways to India. And it shows us how difficult that longest journey, as Foster also called it, will always be. Thank you.
who's been in the classroom since before I was born, I'll let him moderate his own. You don't have to point that out. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Walter? Yeah, I wonder how seriously and in what way you mean um, to call philology or what would be contemporary philology a science? A science? Yeah. Uh, it's a science because it has a set of um, disciplines uh, that have evolved over many centuries, actually. And so if, if you do the kind of scholarship that I do, uh, there are certain things you know you can't do, certain ways you know that you shouldn't go. Uh, it, it isn't a, it's not a science in the way physics, say, is a science or um, uh, even chemistry, let's say. But it is definitely a science because it has uh, strict procedures that need to be followed. And uh, when you get down to certain levels of a, a material that you want to call, you know, pay attention to, say, um, oh, what do I want to say in philology? Say prosody, or bibliography, the the descri description, the analysis of books uh, or manuscripts, and so forth. Th these things are very, very sharply uh, defined, and procedures for their investigation are well known and um, very reliable. Not absolutely reliable any more than, say, chemistry or physics is. <laughs> but definitely a science. Uh, also an art, but I mean, most scientists that I talk to definitely see the art that they need to practice when they practice science. I mean, you know, that the view that you run an experiment and then you just replicate it and then you replicate it again and again and again. I've never met a scientist who didn't think that you run an experiment and then you try to replicate it and you'll fail. Uh, and it's because the material conditions are very, very difficult to, um, to actually replicate, uh, even though theoretically they, everything looks the same. I should probably shut up, but I, but I want to give an interesting example. Johanna Drucker and I, uh, a number of years ago, 10 years ago, we were fooling around with, with um, uh, photocopying. And uh, we, we, we had a, a copy of the of Blackwood's mag magazine, uh, Victorian periodical. And I put it down on the machine and photocopied it. And then I put it down again, and we photocopied it a second time, and then a third time. And then we asked the machine to uh, expose not just that, um, that sort of natural face of it, but we wanted to see the, the code that it was recording. Every copy was different. I thought this was magic. Um, it turns out it's really simple. It's that you can't, ha the light is incoherent. And so every time you run it through, the light is slightly different. And so you get different results. It's hard to replicate. Yes? Sorry? The uh, you mean the digital uh, work? It, it all began here. Actually, uh, Virginia has been a tremendous center for digital humanities, and uh, the it began actually in the library. You know, people often dated from ninety two, ninety three, when the Institute for Advanced Technology and Humanities was founded here, but uh, the library was well into uh, issues of uh, digital humanities 
in the 80s, early 80s. Uh, and so uh, it was kind of natural that uh, IF um, should find its initial home, while well, it's, it's still there, in the library. The, the library here has, has tried to take total possession of <laughs> digital uh, scholarship, and it has done a wonderful job by uh, assembling all, uh, nearly all these uh, institutional entities in the library. Yes? What you're saying means there's no such thing as an edition. That changes things considerably. Uh, no, it doesn't say that. Uh, the, the, the edition well, is one-off. Oh, well, every object is certainly unique. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that it's you know done in, in handset or whether it's machine set. The yes, that's true. Uh, it's not too difficult to see that actually. If you drop, well, is it is it clear to everybody that that's True, every single object is a unique object. Is it also clear? Well, do you actually think that that does destroy the idea or the, the concept of the addition? We're making fun of the idea. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Terry, could you talk a little bit about what it means to be a librarian or a scholar in a horizon of mindfulness of the limit possibilities of our knowledge? You talked about the dissociation of Western cultural memory. You talked about the need for every scholar, and I'm not a librarian, to conduct his or her business in a, in a climate of mindfulness of the limit cases of our knowledge, that, that our knowledge is perforce um, profoundly limited, yeah. and that our cultural memory is profoundly fractured, right. and that the past is a uh, uh, an environment of, of more loss than gain. Yep. If I listen to you correctly. Yeah. And, and, and therefore I wonder, could you talk a little bit about what this means for the people who are stewards of our cultural heritage, either as librarians or as scholars who are trying to mediate the past to the present and the future? It'll keep you busy <laughs> a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I mean, it's wonderful. You think about that. You can. It's endlessly interesting. Um, the uh, I haven't got anything else to say. I don't see it as needless to say a problem, uh, except in the sense that one likes to deal with problems that are insoluble uh, and, and try to uh, do what you can with them. Even in the truth to be embraced rather than a problem. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a loss in is there in loss and gain to match the far off interest of tears? Yes. And the gallery ends with kind of a finality of loss, right? We don't know anything about who he slew or she who he loved. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about strategic forgetting. Right? Like and in some ways I was thinking about deaccessioning and strategic forgetting. So maybe about uh, one way to think about institutional um, policy. I'm very hostile to the idea of strategic forgetting. I I think uh, what I'd rather say is, in fact, I was talking with a close friend of mine today, and and he used the word, and I entirely agree. 
forgiving. Uh, we will never stop forgetting. Uh, the, the, you can't escape that terrible truth. Maybe it's a, a blessing in a certain sense, but uh, I perceive it as a, uh, as a loss. Um, I saw a movie the other night, uh, Before Midnight, the third in, in the um, Link Ladder uh, series. I don't know whether you know this uh, series. Uh, the third, in my opinion, is far and away the best, but there's a wonderful scene where they're all sitting around eating, and an older woman has lost her husband, and she's talking about trying to remember him. And she says, I, I, there was a time about a year, he'd been dead for a few years, and about a year ago she said he started to slip from her memory and it, it frightened her. And she said, what I have taken to doing is exercising in every day in trying to reconstruct his face, lest it disappear altogether. It's incredibly touching moment. So I, I know, you know, Nietzsche speaks about strategic forgetting. Uh, I don't see the advantage of it very well. I think forgiving is probably better. Yeah. The problem of temporality in the sense that when you digitize, you uh, abstract away from the, uh, the, the object. And, and so you don't have all that um, information uh, about, its, uh, uh, about its history that, that's built into the materiality of the thing. Yes, that's true. The, which is why um, scholars, digital scholars, are so interested in meta metadata. They want to multiply the metadata as much as possible. Um, it's not possible, actually, to multiply it uh, to, to a degree that you can actually preserve what you need to preserve. Uh, you are going to lose. Uh, you're going to lose something, uh, probably a good, in fact, a good deal. But you also do gain a great deal. There, there are tremendous advantages to digitization. Um, you can find things about objects that you would not otherwise be able to find out. I was talking with Carolyn, uh, uh, one of your colleagues, just before the lecture, and sh she was talking about a, a demonstration uh, that David Gantz, or was it David? Where are you, Carolyn? Uh, who was it? David Seaman. David Seaman. Um, where he was um, using digital technology to expose hidden words that had been blocked out by inking. Uh, and I, I gave her a story back when I was editing Byron many years ago and I was working in the British Library trying to um, recover a date that Byron had inked out because his girlfriend had told him that he should stop writing such a dirty poem. Uh, and the, on the, Byron dated everything. 
and at the top of this manuscript is this date, and it's massively inked out. It, it had a quarter of an inch of ink on top of it. Uh, and the, I could see the ascenders and descenders, and Byron had a peculiar way of writing both July and January, and it made a huge difference whether that word was January or July. If it was July, he didn't lie to her. If it was January, he was lying. Uh, and so it turns out it's January, by the way. But I couldn't find that out then. Uh, I, I used all the then available techniques, x-ray, you know, infrared, all that sort of thing. You could not get below that thing. I even had, I disgracefully to myself admit this, I, I almost went to the, the uh, director of the, of the um, manuscript room to ask him whether we could peel off the ink. <laughs> I resisted. <laughs> but I sure as hell wanted to peel it off. Uh, uh, we could, I mean, digitization has brought tremendous scholarly investigative forensic benefits uh, that uh, you would not be able to have, um, you know, carried out. 25 years ago, 10 years ago. So it was Shelley who said, we must learn to imagine what we know. And I think today, Jerry again has helped us to imagine not only what we know, but to imagine what we don't know, and to think about the pastness of the past in some new and troubling and exciting ways both. Please join me in thanking Gary for his stimulating. And there's a reception in the first floor of Alderman Library, to which you are all most warmly invited, and the conversation will continue. <laughs>